Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, our guest is Joseph F. Dasta, MSC FCCM. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Texas College of Pharmacy and a professor emeritus at The Ohio State University. He's our guest today because he was the lead author on an article that was recently published in Critical Care Medicine focusing in on cost minimization of the use of dexmedetomidine compared with midazolam. And the particular title is A Cost Minimization Analysis of Dexmedetomidine Compared with Midazolam for Long-Term Sedation in the Intensive Care Unit. This was published in Critical Care Medicine, 2010, volume uh, 38, pages 497 to 503. In addition to his other uh, duties, Mr. Dest is also a very active member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. He's currently on council and has been an integral leader within the clinical pharmacy and pharmacology section. In 2010, he was awarded with the American College of Critical Care Medicine's Distinguished Investigator Award. I'm very grateful for him joining us today, and I found this a particularly interesting topic, and I hope to share this with the members of SCCM. Thank you so much, Joseph, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I'm just going to paint the background a little bit for the listeners and then let you take it from there. Uh, and obviously, please correct me if I, if I speak erroneously, but I think I got this right. So the focus here is a, an analysis of some of the data published in JAMA in the SEDCOM trial, safety, safety and Efficacy of Dexmedetomidine Compared with Midazolam, looking at 375 patients. It was a randomized, double-blind, multicenter trial comparing sedation with dexmedetomidine, the central alpha agonist, versus midazolam. And some of the interesting issues there that I guess you're going to touch on is the, the primary endpoint there, which I know a lot of people had discussed uh, and that was interesting, was the percentage of time that you were in the correct sedation range. And the point of your particular study was to say if those two were about the same, 75% and 74%, Instead of doing a cost-effectiveness analysis, your focus was a cost-minimization analysis. From my understanding of reading your manuscript to say, if you take an average patient that has an average problem and sedate them for an average amount of time, how much money will be saved potentially with the use of one sedative versus another? And I thought I'd let you sort of take it from there. Oh, yeah, exactly. This, uh, we were, I was excited to get involved with the study because <clears throat> despite a large number of clinical trials on ICU sedation. There's really very little in the area of health economics, pharmacoeconomics, essentially the economic impact of the clinical finding. And much of the literature, which is small to begin with, has sort of taken the easy road. They've looked up uh, and reported the acquisition cost of the drug. Unfortunately, just looking at the acquisition cost um, is fraught with problems. One, it's easy to do, but the, uh, the, the cost that one hospital pays may be very different than another one. The group purchasing contracts vary. And secondly, um, as a drug 
goes off patent, the price miraculously falls, sometimes more than 50%. So limiting your analysis just to um, drug cost um, is, is, is very limiting. And I was going to interject mm-hmm. there because that was actually one of the main reasons I wanted to make this and make this pod worthy was because I will be standing on rounds and I am blessed to be at a place where most days of the week a clinical pharmacist will be with me and you know we'll be talking about things and I'll say I want this new this and this drug and the answer is it's expensive we can't have it now I respect that and understand that but uh, just looking at your manuscript and I'm quoting directly from it your point in in the results was that the cost savings that you're going to discuss were observed despite the higher study study drug acquisition cost for dexmedetomidine mean cost of $1,826 versus $80. And to me, that was a a stunning difference. I I would have given up right off the bat and not even said it was possible to show that you could be saving money with that much difference in cost acquisition. Well, yeah, and, and that's sort of the dilemma that directors of pharmacy are faced with. Their boss or their boss's boss um, gives them directions on reducing their drug budget, a very focused kind of silo approach. For example, recently there was a survey of directors of pharmacy and that 25% of directors were told to reduce their drug budget by between 6 and 10%. Some of these drug budgets are several hundred million dollars, so that, that's a lot of money. Uh, we've got to get beyond this approach um, because it doesn't make sense to nest, to just use a drug because it's cheap without looking at the implications behind using an inexpensive drug. And your point would be that, that with an article like yours, um, that the way that an institution has to determine the cost of a drug is more complex than just the cost of the acquisition. Is that the idea? It is the idea. It is difficult for institutions um, to necessarily dig into their specific cost data. Um, it's a challenge for institutions to do that. And I guess I would say in, in lieu of that um, individual uh, approach at, a, at an individual institution, they could look at studies like this and get the concept behind it. The numbers may differ um, depending on the institution, but the overall reduced cost, uh, assuming things are reasonably similar, should apply. And just in terms of um, the next step in the podcast, I'm going to touch on some of the high points from your materials and methods section. Again, as I mentioned before, you performed a cost minimization analysis rather than a cost effectiveness analysis, if you wanted to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, uh, we we think in... um uh, cost-effectiveness analysis is the gold standard, and indeed it is when you have a difference in effect. When, in contrast, the SEDCOM trial uh, quite quite nicely showed that both midazolam and dexmedetomidine achieved the same uh, goal, target sedation time. So therefore, the efficacy was the same. With With that, you really couldn't do a cost-effectiveness analysis because the differences in effect would be zero, and um, the denominator of zero causes bad things to happen to equations. So essentially, when when you're faced with this finding, um, you essentially uh, assess the, the cost of drug A versus drug B and look for the cheapest total cost. 
Now, this type of study, any economic analysis, doesn't tell you what to do. It just gives you, in a quantifiable way, data from which you can make an informed decision. And then I thought, uh, as a next step, you focused in on determining costs in the ICU. And you mentioned here that hourly costs were determined by dividing the daily ICU costs by 24 hours. And throughout this manuscript, you focus on cost in the ICU and cost of mechanical ventilation. And it seems like that comes up over and over again. Was it controversial picking um, the actual cost per hour for, for both? Well, to step back a little bit, the the way this SEDCOM trial um, was set up, they did not obtain the hospital bills on all patients, so we really couldn't uh, go to you know Mrs. Smith's bill um, because it, we didn't have 100% of them. So we then estimated uh, what these costs would be. And we did this based on a study that also I was involved with, so I have some intimacy with it, where uh, a study of um, data, a database study of over 50,000 patients in which we were able to assess the, from a cost-to-charge ratio what the costs in the ICU were on a daily basis. And it essentially ranged between three and $4,000 a day, depending on the type of ICU. Well, we took that data... And, and converted it into per hour, if you will, and therefore applied the hourly time in the patients that were in the SEDCOM trial while they were in the ICU and, and simply applied that. So if, if a patient was in um, the ICU um, in SEDCOM, if they were randomized to DEX, for example, for, for 48 hours, or 49 hours, then we took the hourly cost from the other study and multiplied it by 49 um, to come up with an estimated um, cost. We limited the, the focus to time after randomization, so we didn't look at the cost before they were randomized, and only in the ICU, because once the um, the patient was ready to be discharged, the, the study stopped. So we only we limited it to... Um, to that. So what, what are the components of cost in the ICU? And there are four. Uh, two, of them, two of them you mentioned. One was the cost of the stay from that other study, the cost of mechanical ventilation, and then we added two other costs. One was the cost of treating an adverse drug event to either dex or midazolam that was considered probable or possibly related to the drug. And this was um, done by some of the investigators of the SEDCOM trial where they came up with a a way of how would you treat bradycardia, how would you treat hypotension. And and there was an estimate of the cost, not so much the consequences of that, the cost of treating. And then fourthly, the, the variable we've been talking about, namely the drug acquisition cost, that was a component of our total cost that added to um, the, the total value. Um, and it turns out that cost is a very, very small component uh, of the total cost in the ICU. And again, um, um, thank you. That was, that was terrific. And then again, as you point out in your materials and methods section, in terms of acquisition, again, because that's what comes up a lot in our lives. And the, the other reason I like the study is, as you point out, you get a 
bigger perspective on things other than just the cost of a drug. But the cost of a vial of, of Presidex, uh, dexmedetomidine, is $58 for a 200 mic vial, and the midazolam was $1.56. And uh, th- that's, I, I, that's why I keep bringing this article up over and over again, is it gives you a perspective, because you could be easily just be done at that moment uh, in terms of helping. Um, one of the other points, and again, you discussed the treatment of adverse drug reactions, and to me, I was pretty impressed with that, because I would think that would have been difficult to quantify, but you said because of the way the SEDCOM trial was designed, you had access to, to a lot of that data? We would have access, <clears throat> yes, to the, um, the incidence of bradycardia, the incidence of hypertension or hypotension. And um, uh, the, the uh, primary investigators then estimated how you would treat these conditions, and then we, we had a, a table of various costs associated with the treatment. Um, I would point out that this is different than um, the cost of the adverse drug event, because that's going to be even that's going to be much more difficult to, to quantify. And here I'm referring to the you know the work from David Bates's group, et cetera, where the cost of an adverse drug event, like an extra day in the ICU yeah, or something like right, that. Right. Right. This we limited just how to the cost of its treatment uh, per se. But you know, Richard, you're, you're right that. Uh, you look at um, a couple of dollars per dose um, of, of an inexpensive benzodiazepine. It doesn't matter which one. I mean, virtually, whether it's a benzodiazepine or propofol, these are all off-patent compounds. But the, the $2 drug, if it prolongs the stay by one day, becomes a three or $4,000 drug. Right. Um and then just as we're moving along, there was, as I mentioned to you uh, before we started the podcast, I'm going to read from a section of your statistical analysis section, and I've gotten lots of feedback that people enjoy hearing this because it helps people learn, and that um, in terms of missing data and how you deal with it, um, one-third of patients had their time to ICU discharge and time to extubation censored at the time of study drug discontinuation because ICU discharge time or extubation time was not available due to death or discontinuation of study drug for other reasons. Two strategies were used to estimate ICU and mechanical ventilation times for these censored patients. So the term censored that keeps being used there is, means the data was missing. Is that my understanding? Right, missing because of either they died or there was a breach in protocol or a variety of, of, um, of reasons right. behind it, yes. So the first approach did not adjust data, so the censored time was analyzed as actual time. This approach is conservative and underestimates the time in the ICU or on mechanical ventilation because the censored patients were in the ICU or on mechanical ventilation longer. And then to address this issue, a non-parametric imputation method was used to impute ICU discharge or extubation time for those patients with censored times. And trying to read about this and discussing with one of my other professors, so the concept is you're doing some sort of regression analysis where you, you were able to come up with what similar results were for similar patients, uh, something like that, right? Right. And we were fortunate to have um, actual card-carrying statisticians as part of our group, because um, I was not familiar with how to deal with this, this problem, which is a common problem in clinical trials. Um, so yes, they were able to, um, to impute what if, sort of what if uh, the patient had uh, made it through the entire trial 
and, and the various uh, costs associated or times associated with that. The, the good news is not only um, when when you when we did the imputation with or without, as well as with or without adjusting for other co-confounders like age, uh, Apache two score, type of hospital, etc. The findings, the statistical difference in total cost was the same. It was remained statistically significant. It's probably a better way of saying it. The actual costs, dollars, vary a little bit depending on whether it's adjusted or not adjusted, but they remain statistically lower costs in the dexmedetomidine group. And uh, one of the other points, so I'm going to move on to the results uh, section here, and again, I'm going to quote from your paper, but with all these different models, the big picture take-home results that I gleaned from this was that the median cost saving in the group for their ICU stay was $9,679 compared with the group that had the midazolam. And uh, there were two sort of big points that I wanted to mention and then let you discuss it is that the combination of the stay of mechanical ventilation and the uh, the, the the stay in the ICU and the duration of mechanical ventilation accounted for 98.5% of this cost difference. And as you pointed out also, you developed a sensitivity analysis for uh, high-cost ICUs versus low-cost ICUs, and there was still significant cost savings ranging from $8,951 on the low end to $10,082 on the high end. And... Um, uh, it was really some impressive stuff. You must have been uh, excited to see as the results were coming out when you were generating this. Well, we sure were. I mean, well, I sort of suspected that there should be a difference. I didn't imagine that it would be as large. But it makes sense that if um, there's a lower, if from the SEDCOM trial, a lower incidence and duration of delirium, for example, in patients receiving dexmedetomidine, and that translates into shorter times on the mechanical ventilator, there should be some cost implication to that. You know, and so now we don't need to say, we can go beyond saying, you know, it costs more if you're delirious or it costs more if you're on the ventilator. We can quantify that a bit uh, and maybe broadly say something like uh, eight to $10,000 um, savings if the kinds of um, usage of either of these drugs are similar. For example, what we can't say is um, what the results would be from a detailed analysis if we were comparing dexmedetomidine to intermittently administered lorazepam or midazolam, or can we say what will necessarily be the case with um, the comparator agent being propofol? Because they're different, they're different pharmacokinetics and dynamics. They're inexpensive, however. <clears throat> but recall that if you over-sedate a patient with any drug, whether it be propofol or a benzo, the cost implications are there because of the prolonged time on the mechanical ventilator and, and time in the ICU um, ready to be discharged, I suppose, is the, is the key, uh, will, will be prolonged. But, yeah, we were... We were excited to, to see that data, despite the fact that um, the acquisition cost of dexmedetomidine was uh, easily $1,000 more 
than than the benzo. And I, I, a question that I get is when I give this lecture on the on the study is, boy, that's a lot of money for dexmedetomidine. And the answer is, it is because this the SEDCOM trial was designed to evaluate dex in the long-term setting, the long-term administration. Patients receive dex metatomidine on a median of three and a half days, so longer than the current prescribed uh, labeling and at higher doses. So that's I think, one of the reasons that the acquisition cost was so high. One of the other questions I have for you taking a step back is, how did it work? Was this study done as part of the same group of authors and, and workers who did the initial SEDCOM trial? Is it an overlap in people, or do you go to the the SEDCOM group and say, we would like to look at your database? How, how does that all work? Uh, it, it's a combination of um, authors from SEDCOM, like Rich Riker, uh, Dr. Shahabi, and then um, myself, um, Sandy Kane Gill from the University of Pittsburgh. Um, so we were we were asked to participate in the economic analysis of this uh, clinical trial. So uh, we had full access to the um, to the data, um, and that's really how 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 the study was conducted. So we we were able to sort of piggyback, if you will. Um, the economic analysis into this clinical trial. So I think the most interesting and, and uh, con- confusing part to the average intensivist is uh, these fixed costs versus not when you're saying you've saved $9,679. Well, h- how does that work? That bed will be just filled with another patient. Uh, I understand the concept that if you had two patients that my the hospital will spend less money and society will, in theory, if, if everything from your study is correct, that they will spend $9,679 less. But how does that translate into a, a hospital and, and them saying that this is a more cost-effective way to do business? Now, you, Dr. Saval, you really hit uh, an extremely important point as we understand healthcare financing today that applies to not just this study, but any study that tries to assess um, treatment A versus treatment B, whether that treatment is a, a ventilator approach or a sepsis bundle or whatever it happens to be, that that bed that the patient uh, is in, and if the patient is discharged sooner, there will hopefully be another patient to go into that bed. Um, I suppose the, the way that I would rationalize that is that it sort of gives you an opportunity um, when the new patient, unrelated to your drug or therapy, comes into that bed, an opportunity to provide uh, 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 beneficial care that may be uh, less costly uh, and optimized uh, for that patient. But but you're right. It's not like those those dollars go away per se. Um, it's They're filled with other patients. But I suppose... Looking at the glass half full or half empty might be the worst case scenario would be if it costs considerably more uh, for a new therapy. Um, that would be kind of like the worst case scenario, more expensive uh, drug and more expensive care. No, but and, and again, I, I think that this discussion is, is an important one because making that connection, you know, you take it all the way to the head of your pharmacy, you show them this, this manuscript, and they're going to say, it doesn't matter, my budget's my budget, 
and I need to save money somehow. And so it would need to go up to the next level, right? I mean, I think this is worth talking about. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> and, and the next level is I mean, we're talking at the highest, high levels of the institution to really understand what the implications of this are. It's, it's, uh, it's a very complex, um, complex scenario, uh, as you've pointed out. And does it does it matter? Uh, and again, because of the way you determine costs and hours, does it matter the way hospitals are paid? Uh, does it does the DRG, if a hospital is paid X amount of money for a particular patient, stay? Is is that still make this valid? Yeah, it, it would. So if a patient um, is admitted with uh, with ARDS, and they're going to receive a fixed uh, dollar reimbursement for that condition, uh, the the, the cost associated with that care will determine whether there is a profit, a minor loss, or a significant loss to the institution. So here, the cost of care associated with these sedated patients uh, would be relevant as a function of whatever they're being reimbursed for by whatever condition that they have, and that's going to vary from condition to condition. So I suppose the, the simpleton approach would be the least costly uh, therapy may have a chance of either losing less money or maybe making money, depending on the, the diagnosis. And, and so that, that would be a way of making that connection, then, yeah, that you yeah. could be able to say, look, we are, the, the, we are here to provide high-quality, safe health care, but we also want to stay in business here in New York City. This is not a, a trivial point uh, in terms of hospitals staying open. And if the idea that if one person's budget may need to be increased by a small percentage to save another budget a significant amount of money, that's the whole point. I mean, it's like these big Hollywood movies, right? They cost $30 million, but they bring in $500 million. This is that kind of concept, right? You've got yeah. to uh, to look beyond just the cost. Yeah, and I, and, and I think hospitals are starting to do that, but it's sort of going against the grain of what what is important to me is my budget. What is important to the lab director is the lab's budget. So someone has got to really look at the whole, the whole picture. This was like they say, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts to see what's really good for the system, the institution as a whole. And I thought I'd let you end. You know, I know that you've been involved in, in other studies like this. What are some of the areas where I guess you found the most challenging when you're doing these kinds of studies? And have you had any personal experience at institutions where you're sharing this kind of data with administrators? And, and what was the reception? Um, well, one of the um, weaknesses of any study that involves a randomized clinical trial is that it's a randomized clinical trial. It's not necessarily reality. So I think um, <clears throat> what is needed is a cost analysis of a large database whereby patients are treated in the naturalistic setting or the real-world setting to kind of see how that applies to this sort of contrived, randomized uh, uh, study. Now, have I personally approached um, administrators with that? I haven't, but some of my pharmacy colleagues have, and they're just beginning to, to take this kind of data to their director and their director's director. So it's sort of an infancy. Unfortunately, it's a, a neonatal uh, infancy to, 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 get these, to get these kind of discussions going. But uh, I, I do think we, we also need to look at 
these kinds of clinical as well as economic impacts of, of real-world studies of real-world usage of these drugs. And, and um, yeah, I may have missed sorry. one of your other questions. No, no, no. That was that was exactly perfect. And and I guess you know discussing this with you is actually very helpful. So the focus, if you were having a discussion with an administrator, is we are here to get patients that are very sick safely through the ICU, safely off the ventilator, and back home. And if one of these drugs that may have an initial upfront cost uh, allows us to do that a day or two sooner, that allows our hospital to recoup X amount more and stay open. And I think that that was really why I wanted to talk to you about this, is it's very difficult for the average practicing intensivist to get that perspective. We can't. We're at the bedside. We we don't know. And, And again, that's why I'm all excited about this is, as you pointed out, 98.5% of these cost savings were the time in the ICU and the time on the ventilator. And I think it allows us, when when there's real outcomes of important randomized trials that show improvement, but perhaps it's a more expensive agent, that expense can't just be the cost of procurement. You emphasized to me over and over again today that that shouldn't be where you end. It should be where you begin, Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the tricks that hospitals, I say the word tricks, one approach maybe would be the better way of saying this, would be to ask um, your hospital administrator to come join you on rounds and talk about or hear the discussions that we've been talking about as it pertains to, you know, Mrs. Smith that's in that bed and the, the, the issues at hand with the day-to-day management as well as the larger issues. I think it might help them see the big picture uh, as it pertains to the daily care of the ICU patient. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Joseph, I'm, I'm really very grateful for your time today because this is something that as an, as an individual intensivist, we often are missing this perspective, and that was why I was so excited about reading this article. And even though it was from a few months ago, I, I really wanted an opportunity to discuss this with you and get this out and reemphasize the importance of this for the members of the Society of Critical Care and Medicine. Uh, we've been speaking today with Joseph F. Dasta, MSC, FCCM, FCCP. He's a member of Council of SCCM, and he's currently an adjunct professor at the University of Texas College of Pharmacy, and he was the lead author on an article, the title of which is A Cost Minimization Analysis of Dexmedetomidine Compared with Midazolam for Long-Term Sedation in the Intensive Care Unit. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Sabell. Registration is open for SCCM's Pharmacotherapy and Critical Illness Conference which will be held September 16 and 17, 2010, in Las Vegas, Nevada, USA. Learn about the latest advances and controversies in the pharmacologic management of critically ill patients. Visit www.sccm.org slash pharmacotherapy for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.